Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, yes, I would, say, um, I would start by saying that by no means I'm an expert on sea level rise, and, um, but I, I do have a deep interest in, in how we actually communicate the science relating to sea level rise. And so today I've come here to, to actually um, give you an indication of the work that we're doing at the Hadley Center uh, on how we're actually taking the communication of this science uh, further afield. So I'll be talking primarily uh, about, and before I go there actually, credit to uh, everyone on this list. This is a, a team effort and, and uh, you can see that the real scientific experts uh, are listed there. Um, the, the, the effort involves a lot of people primarily because we have decided to take the science onto a web platform. Um, we do feel this is the way forward and uh, later on I will explain to you why. Um, so I'll be talking primarily about um, how things are looking like in a four degrees plus world uh, according to IPCC projections. Uh, I will also be looking at uh, how we are visualizing sea level rise as a hazard um, and, and introducing that concept here. Uh, also, uh, a very brief introduction as to why we believe the web is the way forward in order to, to communicate this science. And finally, also, I will give you a, a, a very brief overview of what it's actually looking like. The MORSE stands for Met Office Relative Sea Level. Okay, so uh, getting started, where are we? And we've just heard uh, some, some excellent presentations. Uh, we, we have some recent statistical studies that show us and provide us with evidence that the sea levels may actually be above uh, IPCC and what AR4 um, are giving us. Um, but these are not process-based, and, and we, we, we seem to take the view that process-based is the way to go at the moment anyway. Um, Examination of uh, sea level changes over 100,000 years ago by ruling it all uh, shows us that there is a maximum, or there has been a rise of a maximum of 2.4 metres per century. Um, there remains the question of how analogous the configuration of the ice sheets then was to uh, the present time. Um, again, and echoing what um, um, Professor Verlinga has just told us, um, Pfeffer et al. in 2008 placed a, an upper limit on... Um, how sea level rise is likely to be by the end of the century for two metres. And this is based on uh, the modelling and, and the study on kinematics of glaciers over Greenland and Antarctica. Um, more recently, we, we have suggestion and evidence that uh, there is an increased rate of uh, mass loss over Greenland and Antarctica. And equally, uh, there is evidence uh, that... that um, Glaciers um, are slowing down in terms of melting. So a bit of evidence coming from different quarters, if you like. And we must consider it all. We certainly are. Um, equally, there, 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 there is a conclusion by Nick et al. In, in this year that the, the glacier flow rate may be followed by a period of slower flow. So we also need to take all of this into consideration. So what do we do with all of this? Uh, what, in what is a sea of uncertainty? Um, there are different ways of approaching it. I mean, the way we've decided to go is still, and for now, um, bear with me, is the AR4 process-based models. So we've taken this approach, but there are alternative approaches, and both of them have already been mentioned here uh, in some detail. Uh, I would ha add that we have, in the past, used um, uh, different approaches, uh, and uh, the high plus plus, low probability, high impact scenario is one example of that for the Thames Estuary 2100. Okay, so what have we actually done? 
Right, so we've actually looked at the changes uh, in, in global average temperature uh, associated um, uh, relative to pre-industrial periods of 1861 to 1890. The factors we actually looked at were thermal expansion, uh, the melting of glaciers and ice caps, Greenland and Antarctic ice sheet contribution. Um, we've also looked at glacial isostatic adjustments and spatial variations in terms of patterns of sea level change. Where did you get this data from? Well, again, IPCC and the fourth assessment report provided us with a lot of data, but uh, here is the, the evidence. Under an A1B scenario forcing, we've got three different models that by the 2090s show us a temperature, a global uh, mean average temperature rise of four degrees or more. Uh, but under an A2, we've got actually nine different models. What we have, we have done, and as this arrow goes down eventually, uh, what we have done is look at the thermal expansion data for this particular scenario, and we managed to gather the data for seven out of these nine. And this, this, this formed the basis for the thermal expansion figures that we've used, together with the temperature time series um, of, of the same models. The results that we've come to are not surprising, very much in line with AR4. And th this, this was to be expected, given the, the methodology that we've adopted. Uh, so, as you can tell, and I'm looking for my laser pen. Oh, here it is. How does this work? Here we go. As you can tell, uh, other than Greenland ice sheet, actually, by running the, the, the temperature time series through a set of dynamic equations that re reflect the, the rate of melting from both ice sheets and the calculations used in IPCC for the melting of glacier and ice caps, uh, other than Greenland, here slightly above the, the range that we expected, the absolute sea level right values fall within, very much within the, the, the range for A2. This is really not, not a big surprise, considering we're actually using a subset of models, of the full range of models. And so this is what we would expect to see for absolute sea level. But this project is not about coming out with new figures for sea level rise. There are plenty of studies and assessments that will continue to develop the science on that level. This work is about how do we translate this to a platform and an interface that is more easily un un understandable by, by the public and, and decision makers and policy makers. We need to make it relevant to, uh, uh, to every single person who actually cares to, to, to learn about what's happening to sea level rise. And one way to do that is to f go from absolute sea level rise calculations and projections at a global level to relative uh, sea level rise. That, that is the one that relates to uh, locations of interest. So we look at spatial patterns of variation. Again, uh, this is from IPCC, uh, a slight different uh, calculation, but um, very much the same, uh, where bias has been removed in this particular one uh, through control runs. Uh, and also, uh, what this equates to, in effect, is basically a series of variations on how sea level changes around the world. And this, in turn, uh, is added to how we look at um, the difference in vertical land movement. Now, the, the parameters here uh, only account for glacial isostatic correction factors. I will talk about subsidence at the end, uh, including sedimentation, etc. But for our purpose and for our calculations, what we're interested in is basically showing uh, um, a, a basic understanding of where sea level rise is going to be by the, by the end of the century, uh, but within a, a, a format that is actually accessible to, through to everyone, really. Um, and so we come up with a time mean relative sea level changes, in this case for 2099, at the end of the century, that uh, really ranges uh, from uh, 
minus 1.17 through to, to 1.27 metres. Uh, apologies for, for, for the legend, it isn't the best uh, choice of colours for, for, for this particular illustration. We move on to um, how do we actually go about visualising this, because that's where it usually stops. Uh, that's where we usually find that um, we can take the, the, the current scenario and the current projections for sea level rise. But we're taking this a little bit further forward this time around. If we look at sea level as a hazard, we can then start looking at ways of mapping it. And to do so, what we've done is we looked at the mean of the high-end relative sea level projections that we've just seen previously, and we used geographical informational systems. Uh, ESRI ArcGIS in this case was used to overlay a very high resolution digital terrain model uh, with a high-end estimate of relative sea level for the end of the century. By doing this, we're actually allowing ourselves to use um, a very graphic and visually impacting way, which we'll see examples in a minute, of how sea level is likely to, to progress. What I am going to show you today is purely and simple um, our calculations and our projections, um, visual projections for the end of the century. However, this tool enables us to see uh, between now and the end of the century, so that we can actually vary and see how the sea level is going to change between now and then. The DTM, by the way, that was used, the digital terrain model used, is the one that was developed by NASA. There are a number of issues with this, with this digital terrain model, but uh, it is the only one that's freely available uh, and to the research community and has been widely used. And for that reason, it has always been widely tested and corrected. It is by no means perfect, and I'll highlight a couple of examples where, where that, that, that is the case. So what did we do in order to actually categorise different levels of hazard? Uh, we basically extracted from the DTM only those cells that are within the first two kilometres of the coast. We had the entire coastal line for the globe, and we've basically selected the first two kilometres of the coast. We then derived the elevation at each cell location for the coastal uh, digital terrain model. Again, we derived the projected relative sea level uh, rise at each of these cell locations, subtracted one and the other, and hey, binned the coastal relative sea level into hazard categories. And by doing that, we selected four different hazard categories, um, um, one from zero to half a metre relative sea level rise, which we termed low, um, half a metre to one metre, which we termed medium, and one to one and a half metres, which we termed high. Um, you will not see in these, in these um, figures that I will show you later anything relating to above 1.5 metre or very high. And the reason for that is that when we actually started this project, we didn't actually know uh, what, what the final figures would be, and so we, we allowed for, for a higher scale. But uh, in, in effect, the highest uh, relative sea level we found for 2100 uh, using the, this methodology was 1.27, as I briefly mentioned before. So what does it actually look like? Let's have a look. Okay. I'll try and explain this. This is basically a, a web-based um, Google initiative um, making use of Google Maps. And down here, I think you can see the Google logo. Um, it, it also makes use of flash technology, so the delivery of the, the, the mapping, uh, the background mapping, is actually quite fast. Um, what we are doing here, I don't know if you can see there, perhaps there is a little bit too much light, but what we are doing here is mapping sea level um, rise hazard and the potential for it um, by 2099. So this, this information relates to 2099. And we are currently looking at, obviously, Europe 
Um, one of the things I should say is that there is a limitation to, to, the, to the actual mapping um, uh, and the digital terrain uh, model. Uh, and the reason for that is that the space shuttle was limited in how, how far it could actually take measurements of elevation. So we are limited to 60 degrees north down to 60 degrees south. That is a limitation of this exercise, for the time being anyway. Um, so here you, you currently can select the potential future sea level um, uh, rise as, as a hazard. Uh, and here are the categories. So um, here, when we focus in, in, in particular on Europe, uh, what we are actually doing is giving a qualitative assessment of the future hazard of our sea level rise projections. There is one element of this that I think stands out. Uh, regardless of what we're looking at here, the science behind this it remains within the control of, of, of the scientific community. In this case, it remains within control of the Hadley Centre. So access to this interface is to us what actually matters because when the uncertainty goes and we decide that other ways of uh, getting through to the absolute sea level projections are more appropriate, we, all we need to do is update this our end and immediately this projection becomes updated with that um, more, more um, up-to-date science if you like or future science. Uh, we can clearly look at uh, areas here in Europe of the Adriatic Sea and um, the south of France as well, the um, east coast of Spain, um, interestingly here as well, Portugal, and of course uh, the one that stands out straight away is uh, inevitably uh, the lowlands um, over in Europe. Um, I'm not going to go there, but I will go um, on to, uh, thank you, highlighting, highlighting uh, 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 an issue that I've raised is, uh, earlier, and that is with regards to the DTM. There's a bit of an oddity in this image. I don't know if anyone can, can spot it. But if you actually look, we're actually showing you Venice quite safe. Um, and, and we actually know uh, for a fact that most of the Piazza di San Marco, which is uh, right in the center of Venice, uh, is more often than not underwater already. So there is an issue here. And the issue, of course, is that the Space Shuttle uh, Radio Topography Mission picked up on the very top of the church that sits at the Piazza di San Marco. And unfortunately, due to shadowing issues with the geographical information systems, th this does show. There is a rather large 2,500 kilometer square bracket um, over the North Atlantic as well, and that is to do with how a tile was inadvertently twisted. So these things can be uh, cleaned, if you like, from a GIS point of view. But it's quite interesting uh, that we're actually coming up with uh, locations around the world where we know, for a fact, that, uh, that there are issues with, with the DTM. Uh, <laughs> um, I do have some images from Manhattan. I can show you later if you want. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> speaking of the United States, uh, going back, I, th I think again you can see how we can quite easily zoom out. I mean, I'm, I'm showing you Europe, I'm showing you the United States. I could quite easily show you the world. Unfortunately, I, I don't have access to the tool itself on my laptop, um, but this will be web-enabled. So by that, it means that you can actually zoom out to whatever level you want. And this is what we're trying to achieve here is how we're going to prioritize and how we're going to have a look at a global point, at a regional point, at a country level, at a neighborhood level, um, how things are going to look like. Uh, again, uh, the east coast of the United States of America, um, uh, quite significant uh, categories of, of high and very, uh, sorry, medium and high hazard. Um, and here we have um, the Cancun Peninsula, uh, where again, uh, we can see some significant issues uh, up here. I wanted to show you, uh, can anyone recognize this? And I, I will finish with this set. That's right, this is San Francisco Bay. 
a very interesting area that came out uh, immediately as we started looking at the first visualizations. Well, let's zoom in. And the, the further you zoom in, you start looking how it actually relates. Um, and because I'm, I'm afraid because the categorization is actually movable. You can move it around the screen. It was on the other side of the screen, so you can't actually see that. But I think you've got the gist of it. And as you zoom in further, um, does anyone know what we're zooming into? This is highlighting your issue here, Ramsof, of how we need to start mapping critical infrastructure around the world that is of significant importance and how we need to start addressing these issues now. Exactly. San Francisco International Airport. Um, and, and as we zoom into this level, even at this level, we can, we can actually um, verify that there is definitely an issue here. Now, uh, I think one of the, things, the most important things to highlight, and this is a very good picture to end with, um, remember, uh, this is information that does not take any flood defences into account. And so uh, we, need, we need to bear that in mind. But this, this exercise also allows us to add information such as and if I go back a couple of slides, we can very quickly look at this interface here. So why not add um, subsidence, for example? Why not add population density? Uh, why not start cross-linking all of this information on an interface that allows us to start prioritizing? And so to finalize, uh, the reason why we do see the web as the way forward is primarily because uh, we're moving towards an era where we need to enable climate services. Uh, we need to provide these uh, as a complement to what already exists in terms of reports, publications, and meetings such as these ones and events. We need to take it further forward. We need to start bridging the gap where the disconnect exists between the public and, and, and ourselves. And we need to start providing and consider the individual needs, add an educational value, allow the user to actually interact with, with, with what we're trying to tell them and um, try to make it cost effective, lower our carbon footprint and enable a good visualization platform. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.